And for our Bible reading this morning, we are reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and verses 1 to 11. And just to give you the context of this, uh, this incident, um, it took place around about the Feast of Tabernacles, where the priests would go down to the Shiloh stream, collect water from it in a gold vessel, take it back to the temple, pour it out as a libation to God, And it was then that Jesus gave that fantastic statement, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And of course, his teaching and all this really upset the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they were out to get Jesus. So they sent the temple police to arrest him. When they came back without him, they said, well, we've never heard anybody speak like this man does. And of course, that really wound up these chief priests and leaders and they were out to get Jesus under any pretext. And this is where this account comes in. Jesus, at the end of the day, goes off to the Mount of Olives. And we pick that up here at verse 1 of John 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? "Uh, No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And we leave the account there. Kelly, let me just pray for you. Lord, thank you for Kelly. May your spirit rest upon her. May we hear you speaking to us through her this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Morning again. (laughs) Um, Just want to say how amazing it is to be with you all this morning. Um, Got friends from all over the country who've come today to to be with us. And um, we just want to say thank you to you as a church. Um, we talk about you everywhere we go. hope that's okay. Um, because I, I think you are an example of, of how a church should be. Um, you bless us so much. You um, are always praying for us, we know. We know that because we get emails from people saying, just to let you know we're praying. Um, we have many people in this church that support us financially every month. I have friends that do cream teas and <laughs> raise money for us. And, um, 
just, it's just absolutely amazing. Thank you. And then when we come back, you receive us and give us so much time to talk. And um, that is just such a blessing. Other churches will say, we've just got five minutes. Is that all right? And I say, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but it's difficult to talk about everything that we do in five minutes. So we are just so blessed. Thank you so much. And we would love to be in contact with as many of you as possible. So I'm going to pass around um, a clipboard. And if you could put your name and your email, if you'd like to receive our weekly prayer messages. For nine years now, we've been sending out a prayer message every week. Um, Every Sunday afternoon, I sit down and um, write a message. It's just a few prayer points. Um, You you don't even really have to read all the blurb if you don't want to. Just go to the colored bit and pray for us. We know that that makes a huge difference, and we'd love to be able to keep in contact with you. So I'm going to give this to Vicky, and if it can just go round while I'm talking, if you could write in capital letters and neatly so I can read your writing, that would be great. Um, We've also hopefully given you all a magnet, a fridge magnet. Um, If you didn't get one, there's some more on the tables. Please put us on your fridge. Apparently, people open their fridge door 7,000 times a year. In our house, it's at least 21,000 because the boys are always opening it saying, Mom, I'm hungry. Um, but so uh, it's a good way of remembering to pray. Um, if you see us on the fridge and say, Oh, God, please bless George and Callie and Ben and Joe today. Yeah, that would really um, bless us as well. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm just going to quickly update you on who I am and what we do. Um, I was obviously born in England, you can tell that by my accent, Um, and I went to Brazil in 1999. Um, I felt a very strong call from God to work with street kids in Sao Paulo, and um, I met George, and we got married and started working together, and then we had Ben, who's now 14, and Joe, who's 12. Um... And when we were working on the streets, one of our boys in 2004 um, was put in the youth prison. And um, children in Brazil go to prison at the age of 12. And um, this boy was put in the youth prison. And through another organization, we were invited to visit him. And uh, we realized there was a huge need to um, work with these boys. Um, There are girls as well in the prison. Um, but in different ones, but um, we don't work with them at the moment. We, we hope to in the future. But we saw a real need to help these boys, and so we started working, um, visiting them. I carried on more on the streets, and George started working individually with the boys, counselling them and evangelising them and helping them. And we would find them places in rehabs, uh, rehab centres where they could live instead of going back to the streets. But we were discovering that many of them didn't want to go to a rehab after being in prison for a year or two years or whatever. They wanted to go back to the world. And so often they would just run away from the rehabs and we kind of felt we needed to do something that would be more efficient with our time and our resources. And so um, we wanted to do something that would actually prepare them while they were in the the youth prison for their release. And um, so I, at that time, um, was... And this was in about 2011. I was praying, particularly... I, I was a professional actress when I w- lived in England. 
and a drama teacher. And I kind of felt like all that side of my life was buried. And I really wanted to use that to help the boys. And of course, when you go to a foreign nation and you don't speak the language, it's a little tricky to run a drama workshop. So now that I'm fluent in Portuguese, I, I realized that I could maybe use this. Um, our boys that we work with are, are multi-reoffenders. Um, that's literally translated from the Portuguese, not really what you don't know what you say in English. But they're boys that have been in and out of the youth prison since the age of 12. One of our boys in one of the groups um, has had seven Christmases in the youth prison. So you don't have to be very good at maths to work out how long he's been in and out. So um, they have tragic... Um, stories, tragic upbringings, and we really needed something to, to grab them, um, to stop this, this circle of violence and crime, because otherwise it's almost inevitable, um, as they're multi-reoffenders, it's almost inevitable that they're going to end up in the adult prison or be murdered. And so I, in 2011, I wrote a new project called Breaking the Chains, and um, I, I learnt about psychodrama and restorative justice. And so psychodrama is actually a branch of psychology. Um, and what we do is we put the boys into to scenes or um, situations of their day-to-day -day life, so muggings and burglaries and kidnaps and all the terrible things that they're involved in. And it is absolutely incredible because they, they go into role as the, the guys that are the thieves and the, the guys that usually do these things, but then of course one or more of them has to be the, vi the victim in the role as the victim or the victim's family. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago we were working with the group and it was fairly on, early on in the, the, um, the course. We do um, 12 sessions with them. It was fairly on, early on, it was about the third or fourth session and they hadn't really dramatised yet and so they weren't really taking it very seriously. They were laughing a bit, you know, and they set up this scene where two of them went to... Um, um, uh, steal from a bus conductor. And so one of them was in role as the bus conductor, and then the other one was a, a worker. So two innocent guys and then two bad guys. And so they go, and the bus conductor reacted and tried not to, not to be um, stolen from, and they shot dead the two of them. And so they're lying there on the, on the floor in the room that we use. And one of the things, one of the techniques in psychodrama is um, uh, you, you put something into a situation that makes them go like that. And so I was in the audience with the boys, the other boys, watching this scene, and I suddenly stood up, pretended I got my mobile phone, and went into role as the wife of one of these guys, the bus conductor. And so I'm acting, and so saying, Hello? What do you mean? No, no, please. And I, yeah, I do, do the real stuff, you know. <laughs> I was trained and I go for it. And so, uh, I, I put all my, you know, emotion or whatever into the, being a wife that had just received this terrible phone call that my husband had been shot. And then I run over to him and I start banging his chest and I give him another name. Um, and, and I'm, I'm crying and saying, please someone help me. And I turn around to the, the audience and one of the boys stands up as if he's a pedestrian in the street and comes to help me. And then the scene ends and we go to our time of sharing, which is what we do at the end of every session. And the boy that was lying on the ground that had been shot, that was the bus conductor, he stood up and we say to, we say to each other, okay, okay, shake out, you know, what's your name? And they give them, they give us their name. They're not the name of that character anymore. So they go back to themselves. 
And he came and sat down and he just, he sat there and he just went, wow, that was powerful. And I said to him, why did you say that? And he said, I never realized. He said these terrible things that we do. I've done so many terrible things and I just realized they have, we have, there's consequences, there's relatives, there's people. After I kill people, you know, he just got it. Totally understood for the first time in his life the terrible things that he does and the terrible consequences that happen as a result. And it was really powerful. And that is just one example of what happens in the sessions is that, you know, we could sit with them every day and say to them, you know, you've got to stop what you're doing, you know, you're going to go to prison, you're going to, go, you're going to be murdered, you must stop doing these terrible things to other people. But it wouldn't work, you know. And the psychodrama, plus your prayers, <laughs> yeah, plus George's amazing sessions that he does with them individually, talking to them, praying with them, telling them about Jesus, it really is making a difference in these boys' lives. Um, I also heard at this time when I was writing the project about restorative justice. And restorative justice is another way of looking at justice. Traditional justice punishes, puts people in prison, um, rejects, destroys. And that is actually what society requires. When somebody's um, mugged or somebody's murdered, society says, yeah, that guy has to pay, that person has to pay. And that's, that's right. But... There are other ways of dealing with situations, particularly with first-time offenders. You've got, let's imagine there's a young lad and he steals a lady's handbag. He's going to be thrown in prison. What's going to happen? If he's in the youth prison, that's the school of crime, he's going to learn much more about crime. If he goes to the adult prison, that's the university of crime. He's going to learn even more about crime. And so restorative circles, I did the the course in restorative justice in Sao Paulo. What happens is people go um, along and they are are, um, helped by a facilitator. And so the lady who had her handbag stolen, she goes as part of the restorative circle and she invites her husband or her son or her neighbor. They go along with her. Then you have the aggressor, the criminal, and he goes along too. And he takes someone, so maybe he takes his wife or he takes his mom or his auntie or whatever. You have the policeman that arrested um, the person. You have the facilitator. And basically, this circle works to find out why this crime happened. So the aggressor has an opportunity to explain why he went and stole that woman's handbag. And in Sao Paulo, um, many cases of theft are because of abject poverty. Many of our boys are in the youth prison because there's no food on the table and they're so desperate, they can't get work. And so they go out and steal someone's mobile phone and you and I know that's not the right thing to do. But that's the only thing they, in their mind, if I can just get some cash, I can buy some food and put it on the table for my 11 brothers and sisters. And we have boys in that situation. And so this boy has an opportunity to say, I, I, didn't, I really didn't want to steal her handbag, but I, you know, my mum is really sick and I needed to buy some medicine, or whatever his story is. And then the victim, who was often forgotten, you know, we, we treat the offender and stick him in a prison, but then the victim 
has panic attacks and nightmares and can't work anymore or whatever. So the victim has an opportunity to say, this is how I felt when you stuck that gun against my head. And now I'm not able to work anymore and my life has really changed since that day or whatever. And then the relatives have an opportunity also to say how they felt. Um, And then there's there's the part of the restoration. Well, before that happens, um, the person... The aggressor actually um, has the opportunity to ask forgiveness um, of the victim. And it's interesting, because we think of forgiveness as God, don't we? We think of forgiveness as a thing, thing of Christians. But actually, if you're not a Christian, it is possible to forgive. Yeah, For me, I think forgiveness is really God. <laughs> but um, people who aren't Christians, too, can forgive. And so the aggressor has an opportunity to ask forgiveness... And then they try and restore this situation. For, so, for example, the boy is unemployed. Um, what does he want to do? He wants to be a mechanic. Oh, well, it just turns out that the policeman who arrested him has a neighbour who is a mechanic and has a garage, and maybe he would be able to do some work experience with him. So that policeman makes a commitment that he will phone his neighbour and he will try and help this boy. Do you see what I mean? So the, the person is, is restored and George and I had an opportunity to go to Costa Rica in July of last year, and we met a judge who has implemented restorative justice as a law. So all first-time offenders, um, instead of going to prison, they go through these restorative circles. And she's got 98% of success of not reoffense. So it is absolutely amazing. It's so powerful. And so I, I can't put my boys in the youth prison in front of their victims because we're not there in Brazil yet. Um, but through, through psychodrama, I can. And it is so powerful to be able to see the way that these boys, um, their minds are really changed because they're so programmed into um, violence and crime. That's just their way of life. It's like it's their job. And through the psychodrama, we see them actually moving out of this. And, and we're so excited with our statistics. When we first started the project, the, the youth president didn't really understand very well what we were doing. And so they would give us boys that two weeks later were, were discharged and went home. And then three weeks later, we would turn up and go, where's Jose? And they'd say, oh, he's gone home. We're like, oh, no. Because after two weeks, obviously, you're not going to make a big difference. So the boys that did two sessions, three sessions, or four sessions, all of them have got either gone back to prison or have been murdered. The boys that have done five sessions or more, we begin to see the statistics improving. And the boys that have done ten sessions or more with us, 81% have not reoffended. That is so exciting. That is amazing because, as I say, they're boys that almost 100% certain are going to go back into crime. They leave the youth prison, and within a month or so, they're back in the prison again. And so we're really, really excited um, with what's happening there. Um, We work with their families, too. That is key, because um, often it's not... The boy's not the problem. The problem is the family. And they come from such terrible, terrible situations. One of the boys that we work with, his family live inside a bridge. So you go up the slope. Um, When we show the little film at the end, um, you'll see there's a a slope and a hole in the wall. And that's where the, the, the people live. There's about 15 families living inside a bridge. I mean, it's subhuman. Um, you wouldn't even put your dog to live there. Uh, there's rats. When we, send, when we take the food parcels, we can't just leave them with a food parcel. We have to buy a big 
um, strong plastic box to put the food parcel inside, otherwise the rats will get to the food during the night. Many of the mums just stay awake all night batting the rats off the kids um, so that they can sleep. Um, very, very difficult situations. And our dream is to be able to help these families. We already are helping several families, but we have many, many boys that have been through the project and we just at the moment haven't got um, the, the resources to be able to help as many as we like. But it's amazing to see when we go to a family, the way that they receive us and they're so blessed to be helped, even just with a small amount of help that makes them so joyful and so grateful and one thing we're really keen on doing is helping the boys that have been in the youth prison, their younger brothers and sisters, because then they won't follow the example of the older brother and go into crime. So we kind of work with rescue and pre- prevention as well. Um, I've begun to work in the adult prison as well. When I did the restorative justice course, I, um, I was so keen to see how this course works, actually, in the prisons. And so I said to the people at the institute... Oh, would you let me, like, you know, come and help with the course? And so they said, yeah, great. So um, I've started working, and I work um, every Wednesday morning uh, with 20 men in the adult prison. There's uh, 1,600 men in the prison, and 1,200 are in transit. They're being transferred to other prisons. But 400 are fairly static, and they're men that have got long sentences. And so... Our aim is to do this course with as many of these men as possible, um, which will make a radical difference, actually, in the prison before they even leave. So the the course is called the School of Forgiveness and Reconciliation. And what we do is we we go in and um, all these men are criminals. But at one point, or many points in their lives, they've also all been victims. And we saw what we do is we go back right back to the beginning and we find what happened in their lives that has caused them to behave the way that they behave today. So one young man, Emerson, for example, when he was 11, he got a shotgun and went to shoot his stepfather. The relationship between them was so dreadful that he went to murder his stepfather. The mother stepped in between the two of them and the big argument um, happened and basically... Uh, the stepfather said to the mother, you choose him or me. And the mother chose the stepfather. And so at the age of 11, Emerson was chucked out of home. That doesn't mean that he has to do terrible things, but you can kind of begin to understand the pain and the anger and the rejection that he felt. And so that's one example of something that happened in these men's lives. And so what we do is we take in clay, big lumps of clay, and we do a lot of art therapy with them, but one thing we do is they make a sculpture of this situation that they were in, where they felt such pain or aggression or whatever. And we work on this sculpture um, with them after they finished it for about five sessions. We talk to them all about different types of anger, Um, We talk a lot about forgiveness. And um, round about the fifth session, they have an opportunity to write a letter to the person that harmed them and release forgiveness. They also have an opportunity to forgive themselves, which is a big thing too. And um, this Emerson, he came in after this session and he said, oh, my wife came to visit me. I've been telling her every week about this course. She doesn't recognize me anymore. She said, I've changed so much. And she said that, um, I'd, I'd told her that about this letter that I'd written to my mum. And so she went and found my mum. And she told her 
about what's been happening to me. And she said, my mum just broke down into tears and said she's felt guilty all her life about sending her child away and, and not having her son with her anymore and that she loves him. Can you imagine the healing that Emerson received through that? But what was even more amazing was that um, Emerson has two sons, 10 and 7, and he said, they came to visit me. It's the first time I've ever talked to them. I said, what do you mean it's the first time you've ever talked? He said, I've never had a conversation with my sons. And last Sunday, I sat on the floor with them and we exchanged ideas and we talked and we talked and we talked. And you see that this young man, he was so, when he, I remember the first session when he walked in, he was so curved over and bitter and twisted. And today he smiles and you can see he's becoming a dad and he's becoming a better husband. And um, through this, this um, release of forgiveness, he's able to, to move on. And I really pray that when he leaves the prison that he'll be a completely different man. And we talk to them about um, the circles of, of violence um, and how when, we, when we're harmed and we're a victim, we then feel anger and we, we want to get revenge. And so we, we get revenge and that creates another victim and it goes on and on and on. And so we talk to them about moving out of that circle and moving into the circle of healing where instead of the person that harmed us being an animal and a beast and a terrible, terrible person, um, that person actually is a person and also has pain, and also behaves in a certain way. And so we rehumanize the enemy. And this one guy, Claudio, he's a drug trafficker from all different towns in Brazil. He looked at me when he realized this thing about rehumanizing the enemy, and he said, they call me Mrs. Callie. He said, Mrs. Callie, I don't need to kill anymore. I've just realized everything I do in my life, every conflict... I resolve by murdering people. He said, everyone I murder is a father, is a son, is a brother, is a husband. I don't need to kill anymore. Wow. <laughs> I said, Claudio, that, can you imagine the impact you'll have on your community when you leave the prison? Instead of being Claudio the assassin, Claudio the man who resolves conflicts by talking or absolutely amazing. We are seeing just men's lives being transformed completely. Um, just to say also, um, when um, George and I, uh, about three years ago, we were chosen to be part of a tier fund project. Uh, we're not tier fund missionaries, but we were chosen to be part of the tier fund project called Inspired Individuals. And um, they choose small people doing small things around the world, um, but that need um, some help, a little bit of mentoring, um, networking with other people who do similar work. And um, it's been absolutely amazing. Um, one thing that they've taught us to do is to, to dream big dreams, is to be world changers, yeah? We're very small, we, we do something very small, but our work is considered radical in the sense that no one does psychodrama with restorative justice. And so um, they've, they've taught us to, to realize that we can be law changers. And so... My, my prayer before I die, and I reckon I've probably got about another 35, 40 years, I want there to be a law brought in in Brazil that first-time offenders don't go to prison, but they go through restorative circles. And we have, um, as Ian prayed, we have um, links with a judge. The judge is in charge of restorative justice in Sao Paulo, and we're praying that we'll be able to have a meeting with him when we go back to Brazil 
um, that we can sit with him and show him our statistics and that he will help us implement this project right across all the first-time offender units in Sao Paulo. Please pray for that with us. That would be absolutely amazing. Um, Oh, and also to say that um, we are going to Cape Town. Uh, We've been invited to take part in an international conference. Uh, We're going on the 17th of January. We're actually going to go and stay in the prison on Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for 18 years. We're going to sleep in the cells and we have an opportunity, each of us, to pray uh, by ourselves in one of the maximum security cells. It's going to be an amazing experience. Archbishop Desmond Tutu is going to be leading the conference. So we're very honoured and privileged to have been invited to be part of that. I look forward to letting you know on our prayer messages how that went. Um, Ian read the, the, the passage from John, and I'd just like to speak a little bit about that this morning. Um, in this passage where we see the woman taken in adultery, a sinner, bad person, done a terrible thing. Um, but as Ian said, the guys, they were out to get Jesus. So they were trying to set up something so that they, they could get him um, and he made a mistake. Um, and he uses restorative justice. Yeah? Uh, he gets them all to think, well, hang on a minute. Haven't any of you ever sinned? Yeah? Um, I wonder what he writes. Have you ever thought about that? What he was writing in the dust, yeah? I'd love to know what he was writing. I think if it wasn't Jesus, he probably was just stalling for time, (laughs) doodling, thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do here? But it was Jesus, and Jesus knew what he was up to. Um, In Jeremiah 17, 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord the spring of living water. So some scholars say that maybe he was writing the guy's names in the dust, yeah? Because they certainly weren't written in the book of life um, because they were judging him and they didn't believe in him as God's son. Um, Their names were being written in the dust. Um, The men are judging this woman, but Jesus was judging them for their rejection of him. Um, Adultery is shameful, and Jesus admits that, but they themselves are acting in a shameful way by rejecting um, Jesus. So when Jesus suggests that maybe they need to look at themselves, they realize they haven't got any choice, and they have to leave. But Jesus doesn't just let her off, does he? Yeah, that's not what restorative justice is. Restorative justice is showing someone that they've done wrong, but then actually helping that person to move out of that sin and to, to have a different future. And so he says to her, go and leave your life of sin. Restorative justice requires an action, yeah? A desire for transformation, a decision to change and to lead a different life. And so many times in Jesus' ministry, we see him reacting in such a radical way, don't we? Um, Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, everyone hated that guy. He was just the pits, you know, everyone hated him. And what happens when Jesus meets him? His life is transformed. And he says, come and have dinner with me, and I'm going to pay back everyone that I've, I've robbed, yeah? He didn't have to have a whole load of sermons from Jesus or anything, it was just meeting Jesus was enough for him to realize he was such a rotten sinner. 
The prodigal son messed up big time, big time. Went off and spent all his father's money, did terrible things. And what does the father do? He accepts him back. And not as a slave, as royalty, puts a crown on his head. If it was up to the older brother, (laughs) he'd have been thrown in the dungeon and punished for his sins. Yeah? The older brother was not happy. (laughs) But the father, the father was overjoyed. It says that he ran to him. In that culture, men didn't run. But he ran to him and embraced him and welcomed him back. And that's such a picture of God in our lives unconditional love, unconditional love that God has for us. We mess up, don't we? Sometimes we mess up big time. But God forgives us and accepts us back. And God wants us to walk with him. He wants us to walk closely with him, um, to walk in his ways. Our sin separates us from God. When we sin, you know what, what it's like. You don't feel like you can get close to God. Someone says, I remember said, um, when God feels farther, far away, it's us that's moved. Yeah, God never moves from us. He always wants to walk really closely to us. But so often, we're the ones that are rebellious or we move away from wanting to be in his presence. Um, in the first session at the youth prison that we do, we sit down with the boys individually and we, we explain the project to them. And one of the things we say to them is we say, when you do these 12 sessions with us, that's not the end. We want to walk with you. We want to be your friends, and we want to walk with you as long as you want us to walk with you. So if you want to invite us to be bride, um, in Brazil it's a little different, best man and best woman at at wedding. They have lots of them. And so you invite friends to be your best men and your best women. And um, we say, if you want to invite us to be your best men and best women at, at your wedding... We want to do that. We want to sing at your wedding. <laughs> Sometimes George and I are invited to sing together. and yeah, We want to walk with you. We want to be there for you. Not do everything for you, but be there when you need us. And one of the boys in the last group, he just looked at me and he said, no one's ever wanted to do that with me. No one's ever wanted to walk with me. That is amazing. Yeah. And it's the kindness, isn't it, of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that these guys see, that someone would want to walk with them because they're just rejected and rubbish and really no hope. But we say, yeah, there is hope. You can have a different future. You can change. You can change the way that you behave and the way that you think, and we're here to help you. In the adult prison, the conditions are are third world, overcrowding, cells built for 12 men with 50 men they sleep three to a mattress on a tiny thin mattress on the floor subhuman conditions in many ways and at the um, end of the course uh, that we just finished before I came to England one of the men said do you know this is the first time in one year and three months that I've been in prison that anyone has shown me any kindness thank you for showing me kindness and Actually, he doesn't deserve kindness, does he? He deserves to be punished. He deserves to be rejected. But somebody said, love isn't for those who deserve it. It's for those who need it. It's amazing. When you show love to someone who's only ever received rejection and hatred and been ostracized from society, 
It's amazing the power of love in these men's lives. Many of them have become Christians in prison. Um, And I really believe that when they leave, their lives will be different, especially after doing this course. So I'm going to finish now. Um, I just want to say one little thing about you, you, (laughs) my friends, our friends. Um, You know, we're the hands out there. We're the ones that touch, and God uses us to heal, and we hug. We do a lot of hugging. We're the hands. We're the eyes. We go and we see. We see the need. We see people's pain. We see a lot of things. We're the ears. We hear people. We hear people's stories. We hear people's pain. And we listen and hear. But you are the body. Yeah? And if we didn't have you, we'd just be a few ears and a few hands. And Yeah? You're so important. Um, so we thank you. Bless you all. Um, over there is a, a table with our Brazil flag. If you'd like to visit the table afterwards. I brought a few like tea towels and things like that over from Brazil. If you want to um, take one and just stick a bit of money in the basket, that will all go through to the Eagle Project. Um, and when you dry your dishes, oh, you probably all use dishwashers, don't you? But anyway, when you do dry your dishes... Uh, a pan or something, you can remember us and pray for us. There's some magnets there if you didn't get one. On the magnet, it does actually say um, there's an internet thing where if you want to give, um, you just go to give.net. It's so easy. Um, and you can give a one-off offering or a, or a regular um, donation. One reason why we came back to the UK, apart from see, seeing my very elderly parents and from seeing all of you, is to try and raise our personal support. Um, We depend 100% on God for our support. We also depend 100% on the dollar. So when the dollar's high, we're okay. And when the dollar's low, we don't receive in dollars, but the pound is just so linked to the dollar. Whenever the dollar's doing well, then it seems that um, the pound's good. So um, we would love to be in a position where we don't have to worry about the exchange rate Um, when, when it's good, we're okay, and when it's not, we're not. So um, if you would like to help with £10 or £20 um, a month, that would make a huge difference to us. If you don't use the internet, there's some um, support forms from stewardship there. They channel our funding and then give us the tax back as well, which is wonderful. Bless you, Kelly. Thank you very much indeed. If you want to respond to what you've heard this morning, you can pray, you can give, you can keep in touch. Bless you.